Welcome back to those of you who were here last week and welcome to those of you who are here for the first time. Um, our theme is reforesting faith and we are talking about some of the trees um, that we find in scripture. Matthew Sweet is a man who wrote a book called Reforesting Faith. It's sort of just a springboard, although this is not a study of his book. But he talks about how from the very beginning of scripture in Genesis all the way to the end of scripture in Revelation, God has a pattern of using trees to communicate important messages that God is sharing with God's people. Now you're going to get the official lawyer definition, which is that when we talk about trees, it can be the tree, a branch, a leaf, the fruit, a nut, bushes that act like trees, <laughs> a stump. Any of those things are all different ways that God communicates using trees in scripture. And so last week we talked about the first tree that we hear about. We talked about the tree of life and we talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and how that tree shows up both in Genesis, the tree of life does. And then also again in Revelation, when we get all the way to the end of Revelation, the city of God, the, rest the restoration of heaven come to earth. In the center of the city of God is the tree of life, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, which is a really lovely bookend when you think about the redemption and restoration of creation. Last week, for those of you who were here, I asked you to think about if you had a passage that came to mind in scripture that maybe was a favorite that involved a tree. And so I didn't want to shortchange anyone who wants to share a favorite tree passage before we begin with our evening's session that we have tonight. Song? Uh-huh. Like a tree planted by the river, I shall not be moved. Yes. I know what the song The tree planted by the river that shall not be moved. Yeah. Yes. And God does a lot with trees by water. There's, there's a lot that happens that way as well. Anybody else? I, ha I have one. Okay, um, go ahead. Genesis 1, verse 29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And I um, w wanted to just note that this is very special to me because we're, we're vegan. And yes. nowhere in here does it say that people are supposed to eat animals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you're right that initially what we hear in the beginning of creation is that God gives all these plant-based things to eat. Um, it is only a little later in scripture that that expands. But from the beginning, God's talking about all of the things that are um, plant-based as being the source of what uh, humans and, and the rest of creation will eat. Thank you. I appreciate that. Anybody else? Yes, Judy. I think um, with uh, Nicodemus and the tree, mainly because normally when I think of nature and that, I think of physical nourishment that comes from it. Mm -hmm. But he used it to get a different perspective so that he could see Christ. He, he climbed up that tree to see what was going on. And I think that was Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, yeah. Zacchaeus, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. You don't have to apologize. Yeah. It is Zacchaeus. And actually, that's one of the trees that we're going to talk about next week um, because we're going to talk about trees and hospitality uh, next week because that's one of the functions that trees have. Yeah. So I'm the right person going under the tree. Well, you know, <laughs> I know that I am not the right person to go up in the tree. Let's put it that way. Anybody else before we get started this evening? And and welcome to uh viewers. Um yes. First Kings 19, starting in verse four, about Elijah huh? and the broom tree. Elijah uh, and the broom tree, yeah. You're right. You're right. You know, um, in it, pretty much every book of scripture, trees will be involved in, in the telling of a lot of really good stories. So thank you for that as well. And 
Tonight, we're going to still be in Genesis. And in part, that's because we're going to talk about the time of Noah and the flood. So after God has created everything and all of creation is good and humans are very good, by the time we get to Genesis 6, humans are no longer very good. And so I'm wondering if here in the group, in the room, if one of you would be willing to read Genesis 6, 13 to 22. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth and destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and food and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Can you imagine being Noah? When God comes to Noah and says, start building this thing called the ark, there's nothing about the weather forecast that indicates that he should be doing this, right? Do you ever wonder what people around Noah must have been thinking as he sets to work building this ark? And the reason that uh, I've included this story is that there's sort of an interesting challenge depending on which translation of scripture you use. The ark is made out of cedar, or it's made out of cypress. Some translations will say that it is made out of gopher wood, spelled like the animal that we know. That's how the translation shows it. Um, there's even a translation, one of the, uh, the complete Jewish Bible, I believe it is, says that the ark is made out of leaves which we know are not trees, but could you imagine an ark holding all of the people and the animals if it was made out of reeds and pitch? Which just sounds crazy. But before we get to that, um, gopher wood is, for the translations that use that, and then some of the older translations are the ones that where you find that, is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew in scripture, go fur. So it's not the animal at all. It's just go fur. It's the Hebrew word. And no one really knows what kind of wood that was because go fur only shows up one time in scripture as the wood. And it's in the ark. So apparently... I think we could say that whatever kind of wood that was, at least as far as scripture is concerned, when God makes the promise, I'm never going to flood the earth and destroy humans and creation again, there was no longer a need for that particular Hebrew word because God said it will never happen again. And so we don't know what kind of wood it definitely was. But what we know is that there's a thing about Hebrew that we sometimes lose, which is that a lot of times people's names and things have very specific meanings. And that word in Hebrew, gopher, never shows up in scripture after Noah's Ark. So we don't exactly know. But as a little bit of an aside, can you think of another time when a person was saved by being in water, but in a vessel that was made out of reeds and pitch. Ooh, so That's right. That's right. Back, back to the ark, we have a question I have. Mm -hmm. Has anyone in this group seen the ark in 
Is it Tennessee or Kentucky? I've seen advertisements of it. Yeah, I've not been there. I know that there are people who have been. I don't know exactly, uh, to be honest, I don't know what kind of wood they used, but I know that they, they use the measurements exactly as uh, for cubits and, and those forms of measurement. Of course, the other thing, in addition to the where we see Moses and the basket floating down the river and how that's going to deliver people, right? That's one of the messages that we get from Moses' life story. It's also not the last time that God's going to use a tree to save humanity. I think we probably can all think of another occasion where God uses a tree to save humanity. Well, the crucifixion. The cross, right? That's right. Well, long before we get to that, there is one other lesson that I sort of take from this particular passage about Noah and the ark and the trees that he is using to build the ark. Obey the Lord even when you're the only one doing it. Anybody here ever had an experience where you've decided to follow a path of faith and everyone else around you isn't doing that? To a certain extent. To a certain extent. Most of us probably don't feel that we've had to make some really large faith stance over and against pretty much everyone around us. But that not only happens, of course, in the Bible, it happens in the lives of people that have been a part of history in, in our world, and even in, I would say, the last couple of hundred years. So there's three examples that I have here in the handout. Um, and the first is William Wilberforce. Does anyone know who William Wilberforce is? Besides my spouse. <laughs> Michael, who is William Wilberforce? He led the uh, movement in England to abolish the slave trade and then eventually slavery in Parliament. And I think the first time he introduced the bill, there were like 270 votes against and six in favor. And over 30 years, he wore them down and they abolished the slave trade before we did. 30 years of like swimming against the tide, right? Well, slave trade into England, yes. That's right. But they were still active in bringing slaves to the United States. That's correct. During that period. That's correct. So, so they said basically not in our backyard. Right. But uh, we'll still make money on the slave trade. Right. But at least, you know, you can say, well, people have to start somewhere. And, and that was hard enough even then, right? One of his influences was the man who wrote the hymn that we know as Amazing Grace, who had participated in the slave trade before having a very rough voyage in a wooden boat that didn't go so well. And he was convinced that it was an abomination that he had participated in it and he had to redeem his life by doing something more positive. But another example is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you guys know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? He's some sort of a German evangelist. That's why I hear the name often, but I don't really know who he is. German pastor, right? The, yes. The, the stood pastor. up against the Nazis. Stood up against the Nazis, a German Lutheran pastor. Yes. Yes. Who stood up against the Nazis and ended up in prison. Concentration camp. And was hung for an attempt to overthrow the government of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Just a couple of weeks before Hitler committed suicide. That's right. So there you are. And I think just before that camp was liberated. That's right. And had been, again, someone who was doing something that many other people were not doing, including frankly, German Lutheran pastor, right? Not everyone in the church was, was acting in the way that Bonhoeffer was. So my third example here is Corey Ten Boom. Who knows who Corey Ten Boom is? She was, um, well, she was part of the family that 
in dues. They they were caught that they were sent to the camps and her sister died and she survived and she went around the world to honor Mary. Right. And one of the notorious people hidden was Anne Frank. If you've ever heard of the diary of Anne Frank, right? And people were quite literally, just to make a connection with trees, uh, people were quite literally hidden in beneath floorboards, false panels of wood in houses, so that when searches of homes were happening, people would be found, hopefully, in sex, you know, to the concentration camps. Do you think of anybody else who has been the kind of person that you've seen or heard about who where it felt like they were the only one doing it? Jeremiah or Nehemiah? I was thinking more in, in not in the Bible as much as in yeah. life. About Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, that's actually what Colette Luther just said. Martin Luther King Jr. That's right. Um, yeah. Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi. Mm-hmm. So kind of, uh, unless I'm remembering this wrong, I think one of the students killed Columbine was persecuted because she was a Christian and they specifically targeted her. They asked, yeah, they asked her, asked I think she was wearing a cross, right? Right, before they killed her. Mm-hmm. And she confessed her faith right before she died. Right. So those are just some examples to think about. Make sure I didn't miss anybody else. Uh, Sister Joan Chittister. Yes. Uh, Sister Joan is one of those people who has lifted up people of many faiths and not only people who are Christians, recognizing, you know, the work of the divine in in lots of folks. So when we get to the other side of the flood, there's another tree-related event. The first sign of life returning to normal is in Genesis 8, 6 to 12, and involves a tree. Can I have somebody read that? Genesis 8, 6 to 12. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find no place instead of sea because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah and the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. Yeah. So we get the tree branch, an olive tree, the leaf branch of an olive tree. Probably a lot of us have seen pictures of that if you've ever seen any of the Noah's Ark imagery. The thing that I notice about this is first the dove goes out and returns with just a little piece of the tree before the bird doesn't come back, which I take to mean that by that time, the second when the dove doesn't come back at all, that more than the tops of the trees have emerged from being underwater, as the flood story would be told, because now the bird has somewhere to nest, right? Well, also, maybe the bird found the meat. Very true. But since everybody was still in the ark, as the story goes, um, they weren't quite out yet, but we don't exactly know. But what we know is that a tree is... The barometer, if you will, of when it's okay to leave the ark and life is going to get back to whatever normal is. Um, and when people and creatures leave the ark, then God makes a covenant with them for life. I will hang my bow in the sky. We'll fight no more in this way. When we think about the rainbow, we hear in scripture, I will hang my bow in the sky. It's, you know, if you think about people who Use a bow and arrow to hunt and to fight. I will hang my bow in the sky. It's a sign to you. I won't do this again. Um, and bows are 
sturdy part of the bow is, of course, made from wood, not a palm tree. (laughs) And especially in that part of the the world, the ancient world, people relied heavily on olives. To, To some degree, they still do today. But the olive serves a lot of purposes. It is a source of food and of oil. It's medicinal. Um, When we talk about people being anointed with oil in scripture, it's olive oil. That's one of the names for for Jesus is the anointed one, right? Messiah means. And so um, the olive is uniquely and closely associated then with Christ as well. So it shouldn't really be a surprise that before Jesus goes off to the journey to the cross, that he spends his last night on the Mount of Olives, right? That's where the garden is. And Gethsemane, which is the other name that we call the garden, means olive press. So the one who's been anointed with olive oil spends his last night before the cross in the mountain with all the olive trees. And even when the disciples have fallen asleep, he's still there in the olive trees. Now, again, we don't want to make olives have all trees have human capacity, but think about that for a moment, the grounding of being in creation among the olive trees. I was thinking about that when I was at Camp Sequinota uh, the last couple of days, all of the things that trees have stood witness to. And in this particular case at the Mount of Olives, one of the things that the olive trees stood witness to was Christ saying, if you could take this cup from me, not on my, my will, but thine. Elsewhere in scripture, olive trees are a symbol of fertility. You can find that in the Psalms. They're a symbol of beauty in Jeremiah. They're a symbol of divine blessing in Deuteronomy. And there really isn't a single phase of life that's not touched by the olive tree in the ancient Near East, the place in which scripture is geographically grounded. Food, fuel, medicine, anointing, sacrifice. The wood of the olive tree provides furniture, many other things. And the interesting thing about the olive tree, as it has been propagated, especially in the ancient Near East, all the way forward, is that it's propagated by grafting. Does everybody know what grafting is? Chuck, do we need to say a sentence about grafting? Does everybody know about grafting? We can take a, not all trees can do it, but uh, some trees you can take like a, a cutting of it and um, make a cut into a branch or the bark into the, the live wood underneath. And then if you seal that over time, the wood will graft together and it will grow. So a lot of like um, cultivated trees, if you look at different gardens and stuff, you'll see that the base of the tree is a totally different rootstock than the tree on top of it. Yeah. But in some cases, several trees. Yeah. Yes. Several different varieties of trees yeah, yeah. on yes. the same rootstock. Yes. Thank you, Dennis. Frankenfruit trees. Frankenfruit. Yeah. Um, so this notion of grafting and the shoots that are found at the base of a parent tree in, in the scriptural times of the Hebrew scripture it was an analogy to a family being blessed with many children. So this kind of cultivation dates all the way back to the fourth millennium BC and is very much what we're going to see again when we get into the New Testament when we hear Paul talking about being grafted onto the, the, the vine or to the tree that is Christ. He's speaking to people in a language that they would understand because it was the language of cultivation. Before we get to that, um, there are other times that we learn from the prophet Isaiah about a tree as it is in relationship to what God's people are about. And in a negative connotation in Isaiah, at the beginning of Isaiah, we hear uh, the prophets say that people should be ashamed for conducting their pagan rituals amidst the oaks and the trees that they have turned into sacred groves, but they are for pagan worship. So uh, in that case, the prophet 
doesn't talk about what will be done that will be life-giving, but proclaims that you know, if you're going to misuse these groves of trees in these acts that are pagan, the trees are going to wither and only be firewood for you. There won't be a place for you to have these kinds of worship that you shouldn't be having. But by the time we get to the 11th chapter of Isaiah, our second tree for the evening is hearing that the Messiah will come from the family tree of King David. David's father was Jesse. And what Isaiah says in chapter 11, verse 1, is there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And that's a foretelling of the birth of Jesus as Christ. So today, when I was out walking around in Sequinota, I went out looking for a stump with something growing up new out of it. I started yesterday. I looked to find my best specimen, and I this is probably the best one I could have found, but the picture that I have on the handout is a stump with a new shoot growing out of it. Um, and, and I love when you go out in the woods and you find that there's something that looks like there's nothing left except the stump, and yet there's something new that's growing, and it might be a shoot from that stump. We had a mimosa tree in our house in Lancaster County that was a dirty, sticky tree, and so I had it cut down, and it rewarded me by continuing to send up shoots every year for the 20 years that we were there, reminding me that it had the last word and not me. Um, but the vigorous nature of that, and in Isaiah especially, Many of the prophecies in Isaiah will have this whole overflow of trees and metaphors describing the land as people who have been exiled and returning and talking about the coming of the Messiah and then using tree language. So it's sort of fascinating if you read Isaiah from that perspective. This, of course, this particular passage in Isaiah is the precursor to the genealogies of Jesus that we'll find both in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And so if you look in Matthew 1, 5 to 6, or Luke 3, 22, you're going to see Jesus' genealogy. And as you turn the page, uh, for those of you that have the handout, and if, if those of you who don't have it wish me to send you that, I, I certainly will um, by email. Uh, just um, send me an email so I can do that. But the picture on the top is a depiction of Jesse. Jesse, remember, is the, the stump from which the shoot will come. And next to Jesse, you'll see um, a shoot coming up, and then there's a circle. And in the circle is the name of Nathan, which is the next name in the genealogy. And what you'll see, these are resources from the Folger Shakespeare Library. The text below the image in Isaiah um, is interpreted as the virgin shall spring of the root of Jesse, but there shall come a rod forth of the stock of Ishai, and a graph shall grow out of his root. Jesse was the father of King David, and it's from his root, so to speak, then that the ancestors of Christ come. What ends up happening as that story continues to be told, because visual learning was how people would come to understand the histories of Scripture is that as we move into the time where these types of, of very visual descriptions show the descendants from Jesse through David and on through Christ, is that in the medieval period, the nobility of the day adopted this same way of having the tree be a symbol of your lineage. We've all heard of family trees, right? In the medieval time, through the 18th century, people were using, quite literally, very visual and elaborate depictions of their people and their lineages with these vines and leaves and trees so that it really did look like a tree when you were seeing all of that. By the time we get to a little farther along, especially the 18th century, People still refer to them as family trees, but oftentimes the diagrams were not as elaborate as they had been. And they focused more on just drawing the lines so you can see who came, who begat who, so to speak. But uh, if you get a chance to go online, um, the Folger Shakespeare Library has a lot of this. And the article where I found most helpful was 
one that was entitled Where Do Family Trees Come From? And it's an article that's on their website and shows these pictures of you know, how this sort of progression of the depiction of genealogies. Uh, because remember that there are also uh, different places in, in culture where people believe that kings rule by divine right. And so that all melds into this whole family tree genealogy as well, uh, long before we move into the tree-free versions of what our family trees look like, if, if any of you have done that. Who here has done genealogy work? Anybody? Well, dabbled at it. But I dabbled at it? Yeah. I sort of ran into a dead end because my family is mainly peasants, and eventually there's nothing more to know. Um, unlike what they tell you on Ancestry.com, there really isn't anybody famous working in the you know, the hustings waiting for me to find them. This side of the cross, that whole notion of the tree and the root is what Paul picks up in Romans. And in Romans 11, 16 to 24, which I'll read, if the root is holy, then the branches are also holy. But if some of the branches are broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not vaunt yourselves over the branches. If you do vaunt yourselves, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You'll say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And even those of Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you've been cut off, cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul's using this agricultural imagery, very much understood in his day, to convey new life by grace and the work of Christ. The new shoot on the stump of Jesse. So the language that we heard in the Hebrew scripture of that, that grafting agricultural imagery is still very much something that resonated with people in the time of Christ and the time of the early church. And I know that unless we are focused in agriculture today, it doesn't often have that depth of meaning for the rest of us. I feel fairly certain that if my children were asked to explain what this whole grafting passage means, uh, chances are pretty good that they wouldn't be able to do it. So, so what about you guys? Does, does a passage like that still speak today, or is it one of those ones that's hard to understand? Well, I always have a little bit of difficulty with concept concept of we're adopted into God's family because God created us, so why are we not his children already? Mm -hmm. but, but when you think about how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were chosen, the chosen people. Mm -hmm. I can kind of understand that, then that we could be grafted into that chosen family um, with mm -hmm. Christ being the, the root. Right. Actually. Yeah, the root that's holy, right? Yeah. 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 And so a passage like this, and of course, Paul has way too many words. Um, but it's not that everything is uh, that, how do I want to say this? When we're grafted onto picturing Christ as the, what's the word for, for what's the beginning of the grafting? Is it the rootstock? The rootstock yeah. There we go. So um, that we take on the qualities of that to which, under which we are grafted. Not that we weren't also a, a living, created thing, but that we take on, it's a righteousness conversation. And I think for people in the agricultural times, they would have understood that that, that which is grafted onto the, the parent stock, to the root stock, takes on the qualities 
uh, and then grows anew, right? It's a way of talking about new life. It's a bit of a reach for us, I think, because we don't use that language. And yet, uh, as I think about all the new life that comes from whenever something is grafted and, and takes, right? The, the challenge, of course, is not falling into the trap of thinking that uh, if we don't successfully take the parent stock, what happens to us? God's salvation, of course, is bigger than that. That's why I think to some degree the metaphor is incomplete. Mm -hmm. um, there have been times that I've tried to graft things and it hasn't worked out. Um, but that's not the way God sees us. Right, God continues to draw us into new life as opposed to, well, you know, we tried to have you work out, but you just didn't make it, you know. Um, so, so there's a limit to how that metaphor works successfully. But what we can take from it, which is, I think, more about the, the shoots that keep coming up from the stump, right, mm -hmm. is this perpetual nature of new life, that God is always creating and bringing new life even when we look more like a stump than a successful grafting. So um, and when you see in nature, in spite of us, how often nature truly in spite of us is able to continue to, to have restorative properties and powers. Um, that doesn't really say so much about us as it does about the strength of God's creation. Right? Have you ever been somewhere where there's been a forest fire and then the fireweed shows up? These little pink flowers, and they're like the first things to show up to remind you that something's going to come back. So, also with that, and keep going back to forestry nerd stuff, but um, so in Pennsylvania, when we manage our forests, we don't we don't plant trees. It all is naturally regenerated, mostly in our hardwood forests through either stump sprouts or root suckers. So, the tree naturally sends shoots up from the stump or Sucker, but we don't plant trees. The tree, the forest for hundreds of years has regenerated itself. Mm -hmm. So again, despite what we do, I mean we, we utilize wood from Pennsylvania's forest, but despite that, that's an amazing ability to sustain itself. Yeah, yeah. My my friend uh, moved up to Shroom Lake area mm -hmm. in New York and the people around there own cabins. Well, they, they bought a cabin and they have um, so called lumberjacks, loggers, <laughs> loggers um, come in and take down the taller, bigger trees, mm -hmm. but it lets, it allows more sunlight for the younger trees to continue to grow. And that's how they manage the forest. Yeah, so we call that hydrating, unfortunately. So the problem with that is that basically all of Pennsylvania was clear cut at the turn of the century for the most part. So everything is the same age. So when we go into a forest, cut the big trees and let the little trees grow, the big trees and little trees are the same age. You're just cutting the trees that were more successful, had better genetics, were able to take advantage of the site. Uh, site resources better, leaving the such the losers, <laughs> the trees that weren't able to do those things. Oh wow, that's interesting. To take over. Well, you have to take that up with them. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, listen, we've only taken it up with just about everybody. It's very. But you know, you make a really interesting point as we take a little bit of an aside here for a moment from scripture per se, which is no, no, not at all, not at all, because we've also been talking about creation here, right? And that if trees are important to God, trees should be important to us. And I confess that I didn't know until I just heard you say it that Pennsylvania had essentially been clear cut. And so I'm sitting out there thinking, well, these big trees are getting in the way, these smaller trees, and they're not getting a chance, assuming that it's an age versus vitality yeah. thing. And I didn't know that. Age and diameter are not terrific for. So if you cut down those big trees, then they would have the same number of rings as the uh -huh. smaller trees. It's just those smaller trees, the rings are just all cramped together. Oh, my word. Yeah. I had no idea. Last week, I learned that palms are not trees. <laughs> and this week, I learned that it doesn't matter 
Oh. It, doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with sunlight. And just, you know, they can't they can't get up there because they don't have the nourishment of the sunlight. I mean, it's complicated, but yeah. I mean, it's a certain species outcompete other species. But generally, if you're looking at the same species within a forest, mm -hmm. if you're comparing the large ones versus the small ones, same species, you'd be looking at the, the same age class. They would probably have been from the same germination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now there's like other species that do well in the, the shade tolerance, so they can come in later after the canopy closes. And so those could be of a different age class. But generally, the, the main canopy, same the species that make up the, the main canopy of the forest, are all probably going to be about the same age class. Huh. Huh. Well, that's what I like is that we get to think about scripture. No, seriously, but we also get to think about the world around us in ways that maybe we hadn't or we didn't have the capacity to know. Um, and and I, I think that the more we know about the world that surrounds us, the better we are able to be caretakers of it. That's not to criticize where mistakes have been made as much as it is to say, um, Wow, this is this is interesting information. So before we get to our um, our closing here, uh, Tyler says that she has a question. So Tyler, can you unmute and ask your question? Yes. Thank um, you. So when I read this passage of scripture, um, and maybe this is because of my varied religious backgrounds, um, not having been brought up as a Lutheran, mm -hmm. um, but what I read in, in that is that some of us are going to may be quite surprised in the end who gets grafted into the tree. And I have seen on the ELCA Facebook page where they um, say supportive things to other religions on their religious mm -hmm. holidays. And when I was brought up in Baptist, and we were taught that other religions are worshiping the same God, but just in a different way. And but then I read in the previous scripture, Isaiah saying and condemning the pagans um, for worshiping in the trees. There are some people who would say that you know the pagans are worshiping god just in different ways and um and and goddess worship is worshiping the feminine divine and and so i'm kind of wondering what the elca position is because you know when they for instance, um, congratulate you know congratulate Muslims on Eid and call them our brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. um, how how far do we go with that? How, is that mm -hmm. all religions, or do we just pick the ones that worship a male god, or how does that work? Because I'm reading this scripture as that we might be surprised, but I don't know how far that goes. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to see if I can thread this together in a way that that will be helpful. Um, so the the first piece is that when when we're hearing the prophet in Isaiah telling people um, that you're you're worshiping other gods and you're not worshiping the one God, right? Uh, God, I don't know, the creator. Um, to some degree, of course, the prophet is speaking to uh, people in the Hebrew scripture and reminding them that they are supposed to be monotheistic, right? That they're only to worship um, the God who has been their creator. So, um, but as we are looking forward uh, this side of the cross, there are a couple things to keep in mind, and, and one is that um, when we as a denomination or, or us as individuals, when we wish people uh, blessed holidays who are not Christian, 
what we are doing is we are, are being loving toward them. We recognize that not everyone at this point in life believes that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. We recognize that um, specifically Judaism and Islam share a common ancestor in Abraham with Christianity. And so part of our dialogue in that direction is recognizing that we share a common ancestor in Abraham, in, in our collective family tree, if you will. Um, if we go all the way forward in time and we get to the book of Revelation where all of creation is gathered around the throne, worshiping the lamb, I don't know when that will happen. I don't know how that will happen exactly. But I do take God at God's word that there is more that we don't understand today that we will learn in the fullness of God's time. And so it is not for me to say how God intends to accomplish the redemption and the fullness of everything that God has created, but I believe that God will. And I believe that when God does that, that things that are the constructs that we use in our lives today about male, female, which religion, any of those other constructs that are a part of our lived reality uh, will be subsumed in the glory of God. Again, I don't know what that will exactly, how that all transpires, but I trust that God will bring it to be so. So in the meantime, when we wish blessed holidays, religious holidays to others, we're simply acknowledging that they are celebrating a holiday um, rather than, you know, demonizing somebody because they're not celebrating the one that we do. Um, so it's not an official position of the ELCA as much as it is more an understanding of being loving toward all of our neighbors. So when, when you see those expressions, that's, that's really what's happening there. Um, we, of course, are in dialogue with, with people of all faiths and, and no faith. At least speaking only for myself, uh, I don't have to believe what someone else believes to treat them with dignity. And so that's, that's really where, where I come at this from. And I recognize that although there is a staying power of the message of Scripture, there are also specific parts of Scripture that we're speaking to a particular people in a particular time, as well as have come to be interpreted as being prophetic looking forward and pointing to Christ. So I know that was a lot of words all at one time, but that's sort of my overview answer. Thank you. Is that helpful? Yes, yes, it, it is helpful. I guess I just, when, when it says in here that, you know, God has severity toward those who have fallen and, you know, certain people can be cut off. And I, I just find that all very confusing, you know, to know where you are and who's who and who's in, who's mm -hmm. out. You know, right. it's um, I, I find I just get very confused by it. And, and I, I, I understand and I'm, I'm often right there with you, um, because when we preach a message of grace and yet we have the whole of the canon of scripture, there are passages that seem to fit more clearly than others do um, with that. And that in part is, some of it is context, time, and place. Uh, some of it is language of the day. And I'm not trying to minimize scripture when I say that as much as say that the fullest expression that, that we in our lifetime know is, is the expression of Christ. who didn't come to change what God said as much to as to offer a clearer understanding of what incarnational love that God intends looks like in our midst. Um, I'll be the first one to say, for example, that there are passages like in the Gospel of Matthew that talk about, you know, being tossed into the fire. A lot of that language is invective, meaning it's intended to capture people's attention because people are really going in a direction and nothing else seems to have caught their attention. And so it's not all intended to be literal as much as uh, God's longing that people will uh, choose a different path. Ultimately, in the work of the cross, God chooses a different path for all of us. 
whether we've done a very good job of choosing that or not. That for me is the overarching theme. In the Old and New Testament is God's heart for the people is ultimately I will continue to choose you even when you don't choose me. I, I think that, that that helps me some. I, I I think being someone who has been cut off by the church in my mm-hmm. lifetime, who has been condemned with scripture in my lifetime mm-hmm. because I'm gay, um, mm-hmm. I I am very sensitive to this sort of passage. Yes. And I think that's why it's important to continue to have these conversations so that we don't walk away from a passage of scripture believing that, in fact, uh, when people say only some of us are chosen, that's what we should leave with. That's part of why I said that grafting language feels to me like an incomplete metaphor, because I've done grafting on occasion when it didn't take. So what does that mean? Um, But God continues to choose us and will continue to join us into God's creation and God's ultimate vision. Uh, I don't think anybody's being left out of the equation. Uh, I think God's a much better gardener than that. So with that, if I could, I'd like to close with a, uh, a poem first from Mary Oliver. It's called When I'm Among the Trees. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locusts, equally the beech, the oaks, and the pines, They give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world but walk slowly and bow often. Around me, the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world to do this to go easy, to be filled with light, to shine. Creating and redeeming God, help us to dwell with you as among the trees and recall your saving love for us and all creation to sense your new life in our midst, be filled with your light, to shine this hope in the world. Amen. Friends, next week we're going to talk about trees and hospitality. We're going to hear about Abraham under the oaks of Mamre. We're going to hear about Zacchaeus and the tree that gave him hospitality. And we're going to talk about inclusion. So thanks for being here tonight. We look forward to seeing you next week. Be well. Take care.